Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you that you have communicated with us, that you have uh, condescended and you've spoken. You've, you've revealed yourself. You, you've shown yourself to us in love that we can uh, know you uh, as you made us to know you, and, and we can live a life that is connected to you and connected to the uh, just beautiful purpose that you've given us um, as your creatures, as humans, to, uh, to walk with you, to know you, and to take care of your world and to display you to those around us. And so we, we ask that as we turn to your word, that you would give us uh, insight and understanding. Father, you know our, our heart objections to this passage. You know the different ways that, that each of us are prone to, to bristle uh, against um, the good things that you call us to. And so we ask that, that you would help uh, lower our defenses, that you would make us humble and teachable uh, before your word, and that by your spirit, you would really speak to us uh, through your word, that you have something for each of us uh, today that, that we need to hear, that we need to abide by. Um, maybe it's a word of encouragement, maybe it's a word of challenge, a word of correction. Um, we know whatever it is, it, it's, it's, it's because you love us and you care for us. And so Make us sensitive to your voice through your word, uh, insofar as it's, it's faithfully taught. So come and glorify yourself uh, through your word, by the power of your spirit, for the glory of your son, Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. We're going to start with um, just reading the text. So uh, you can turn your Bible on or look up. Um, and we're going to be in Exodus 20. To situate uh, where we are, we're now at the point in, uh, in Exodus where God has come to his people. He has set them free from slavery and captivity. He has shown up uh, powerfully and worked miracles and signs uh, to free them in order for them to be his people and for him to bless the whole world through them. And so he's now establishing this covenant, this special binding relationship with his people. And now he is laying out, this is what it means to walk in my covenant. This is my law. These are my commands. This is what it looks like to be the people of God so that you can be close to me and be a blessing to the whole world. We're looking at uh, the first of the Ten Commandments. And so uh, everyone is sort of vaguely familiar. Everyone probably could uh, name one uh, or two of the Ten Commandments, and we're going to kind of work, work through them, and we're going to start uh, with the beginning of the, the Ten Words or the Ten Commandments. So Exodus uh, 20, God is, uh, Moses is approached from the mountain Sinai, and now God is speaking these words to his people, forming them as his people for their purpose. 20, verse 1, God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. So we've got the first three of, of the Ten Commandments. Verse uh, three is uh, the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Verse four, you shall not make yourself a carved image or idol is two. And then verse seven, you shall not take the, names, uh, the, the Lord's name in vain is, verse, uh, is commandment uh, three. Um, and so we have the first three commandments here. And really what I want us to see today is that 
God's command here is essentially boils down to this, to worship him alone. That's essentially what these boil down to. It works out in different ways, but it's for his people to worship him alone. And I want you, I want us to understand that God's law, his commands in general, and this command in particular, are always a display of his love. That when God says, worship me alone, that is a display of his love for you. Now, when people encounter God's commands or encounter even the Ten Commandments or even hear this, you shall have no other gods before me, you might think, well, what does that have to do with love? You might be maybe replaying a, a great song uh, by Tina Turner in your head. What's love got to do, got to, right? That's maybe what's going on in your head. Like, what's love got to do with you shall have no other gods before me? But actually, love has everything to do with that command. We know this intuitively. We know that restriction is the language of love. We understand that. That's why, to a loved one, getting ready to travel, getting ready to do something, or a niece, or a nephew, or a child, or somebody who just needs guidance like a child, even though they're not a child, if you love them and you know that they're going through certain things in their life, you are not only going to encourage them, but you are going to restrict them. This is why loved ones will say, whatever you do, do not touch that. This is why we encourage people that we love not only by affirming them, but by restricting them from things. Because restriction is a language of love. Restriction is a way to protect and care for someone that you love. You all know this from experience. When you're talking to a, uh, a friend uh, and they're talking about kind of their plans or how they're going to handle a situation, and in your head you're thinking, do not do that. <laughs> what you just said is not going to go well. Do not do that. But what comes out of your mouth is just, hmm. Hmm. Okay. Right? And, and so, so what's the reason why you do not speak that word of restriction? Like, right? Because the, the reason you don't speak that word of restriction is because you actually do not love them enough to deal with that confrontation, awkwardness, and, and potential conflict, and then all the time and energy to kind of walk them through the situation. So you just say, hmm, hmm. And then as you leave, you're like, that is not going to go well for them, right? If you, the people you love, you restrict them. You say, don't do that. You speak sharply to the people you love. Have you noticed that? The people you love, you speak the most directly to them because you want to give restriction in order to care for them. And this command, all of God's commands, and this one in particular, are a display of his love for us. So it says, no other gods but me. He restricts because he loves. I want us to see this verse 2, and we'll kind of work this out a little bit more, but verse, uh, verse 2, notice that even the Ten Commands start with this. Verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of, of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. God starts his law with grace. God starts his law with mercy. God is making it clear that the reason you're my people is not because you've obeyed my Ten Commands. The reason you're my people is because I saved you when you couldn't save yourself. We talked about this two weeks ago. God's, the fundamental foundation of God's relationship with you and humanity is one of mercy because there could be no other relationship any other way. 
So even the law starts with mercy. And so now he is giving them his law as a display of his deep love in order that they can live as his people. This text is is so important and critical. If you are in a relationship with Yahweh, the Lord, if you are a follower of Jesus, unless you see that God's law is a display of his love, your relationship with him will always be hindered. Will always be hindered. If you're here and you're not sure what you believe or you're figuring things out or you're kind of returning to following Jesus or you're like, I don't follow Jesus, I'm just kind of here because I'm here. We're glad you're here. In a good spot, give you safety and time to figure things out. But it's important for you to understand this text because if you're exploring or looking at Christianity, it's very important for you to understand that God's commands are not burdensome. They're a gift of grace and a display of his love. If you don't understand that, the whole Jesus thing will, will make very little sense. So this first thing I want us to see as we look at commands 1 and 2 in verse 3 and 4 is this, that God's command to worship him alone is a display of his love given for the purpose of our healing. God's command to worship him alone is a display of his love given for the purpose of our healing. Can you guys say healing? You can. Great job. Healing. I believe in you. Um, It's for the purpose of our healing. Now, let's think about this. God is forming a people, not just to be close to him, but to represent him to the world. And so they need the law to know what does it mean to represent God? What does it mean to be about God? They have no clue. This word, you shall have no other gods before me, it's like a healing ointment given to the people. It's going to heal and remedy and correct and mend a broken bone and set right what is broken within the people. This is a word of healing given for the purpose of healing. And here's why this command is a word of healing, because Israel has a problem. Their problem is they are going to be tempted to worship anything and everything but God. God is making Israel his people in order that the whole world can know who God is. And here's the problem. The whole world is going to be worshiping everything but God. And so for God to say, have no other gods before me, he is giving a word of healing to the very core tendency of Israel, which is to worship anything except for him. That's what he's doing. Now, worship here, you shall have no other gods before me. It says, you should have no other gods above me. Uh, This isn't worship in the sense of singing. Singing is about 0.1% of worship, just in case we didn't know. Worship is about devotion. It's about allegiance. It's about what is ultimate. It's about loyalty. It's about love. And God is giving this command in love because in uh, in the ancient Near East at this particular time, everybody worships, but they do not worship Yahweh. So this is a word of healing. At this time, it was common for people to have three gods, their national god, who their fathers and mothers and their ethnic tribe worshipped, and their personal god, the god that they liked the most, and then their family god, the god that their parents worshipped. So everybody worshipped. Everybody worshipped gods. Israel's coming out of Egypt where they're a god for everything which is common to the culture at that time. And so God is calling them to something strange, to something unique. He's saying, you'll have no other gods but me. This is a word meant to heal what is going crooked at this particular point in time. 
This word is meant to heal their biggest problem and our biggest problem, that we worship the wrong things. I love uh, the novelist David Foster Wallace. He says, uh, says this in one of, uh, one of his uh, well-known speeches. Um, was not a person, I think, that ascribed to any faith system, um, but he, he had insight into human condition. He said this, that in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is no such thing as atheism. Everybody worships. Because everybody worships. Just like at this particular time, you have your, your national God, you have your personal God, and you have your family God. At our particular time, people have what they say they believe on paper, Christian, atheist, agnostic, Buddhist, Muslim, whatever. They have their God on paper, and they may say, I worship nothing, but then they have their life, which says what they really do worship. Everybody worships something. Everybody looks to something as their ultimate source of meaning, as their source of comfort, as their source of purpose, as their identity. We all worship. There is no escaping it. We all worship. Now, the problem is the thing that God is going to heal through this command is the fact that we are all worshipers, but our default setting is to worship the wrong thing. I don't know if any of you have ever had this with a, a, a piece of technology, um, which makes, just saying that phrase, a piece of technology, makes me sound very, very old. Um, I know I have a smartphone, I know technology, right? But just substitute whatever that is for you. Uh, any of you have dealt with a piece of technology, excuse the phrase, and have realized that the problem with the piece of technology is not how you're using it, but it's the settings? Any of you ever had that before? None of you had that. Okay, good. Glad you guys are with me today. This is fantastic. I will preach to you. <laughs> you, are, you got that. Okay. So when a default setting is wrong, it doesn't matter what you do about all the other peripheral things. There is something fundamentally skewed. doesn't mean that the thing is worthless. The thing's great, but there's just something about it that, that needs to be reset. That is humanity. That if we look at the story of the Bible, we are flawed masterpieces, We are beautiful. We have dignity that nobody can take away. We have dignity because we're made by God. It doesn't matter what we believe, what we do. God says you have dignity and worth, no matter what. This is why Christians care about how people are treated, no matter what, because they're flawed masterpieces. The the flaw in us is that there is a default setting that is off, and if we look at the story of Scripture, the fundamental essence of what is off about you and what is off about me is that we are like Israel. We will worship the wrong thing left to ourselves. This is the fundamental problem of the human condition. Think about how every, almost, not almost, every major problem that we see in the world can be traced to idolatry if we get it down to its source. Idolatry is worshiping the wrong thing. Think about this. If you worship money, if people are prone to worship the wrong things and people end up worshiping money, is it any surprise that we come up with the slave trade? That's no surprise. That is the extreme of worshiping to the the God of money. The extreme of worshiping the God of power is dictators that enact genocide. Everything, according to Christianity, is tied to worship. Therefore, this command, no other gods before me, is meant to bring healing to you and to me and to humanity. God is seeking to heal through his word. To help you grasp how fundamental, how easy it is for us to worship the wrong thing, I want you to, to just think about this question. Have you ever wondered why it is so easy for you 
to fall into living for what people think of you. Have you, have you ever wondered why it's so easy for you to run to things for comfort when kind of deep down you really know this actually is not going to comfort me that much? But I feel just like magnetically pulled towards this thing. And I, I know it's not going to really give me what I'm looking for, but I can't quite help myself. Those are all symptoms of the root cause that we as humans will worship the wrong thing. It's our default in us. And a helpful way to think about this is this idea of idolatry, to think about it that in, in these terms that our fundamental posture towards God is to replace him. In our brokenness, in our sin, that is our fundamental posture towards God as human beings, is that we are looking actively for ways to replace him. We're like, we're like the, uh, the person who, who finds something that's an item as they're shopping that's good, but in the back of their head, there's always this nagging thought, what if I find something better? We are God replacers by nature. Human beings, I'll put this in another metaphor for you, human beings have PhDs in idolatry. We come out of the womb with that, looking to replace God is fundamental to what it means to be broken by sin. And so, we must know this, and then we must understand this. What is it, or maybe not what is it, I don't want to assume this, but have you of late been replacing God with something? Now, some of us may immediately go to, yeah, I've been replacing God with something. I had a great time at the beach yesterday. I should have been reading my Bible for seven hours, right? And it's like, well, only you know the answer to that question, right? But God likes us to enjoy the things that he gives to us. So you can enjoy, you can enjoy whatever I just said as the example, I already forgot. You can enjoy whatever that is and thank God for it and that not be idolatry. But we know when we're getting into idolatry. We know when we're running to a certain thing instead of running to Yahweh. We know when we're doing those things. So have you of late been living as a God replacer? What have you been replacing God with? And how is that working out for you? What will happen if you stay in that idolatry a year from now, two years from now, five years from now? What type of person will you be? Our default is not just to replace God, but to reduce God. Look at command uh, number two, verse four. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything in heaven above or in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. So we're not just God replacers in our idolatry, but we're God reducers. This is creating an idol for the eternal, holy, perfect, transcendent God, Yahweh, and reducing him down to something that we can carve out of wood. This helps us to see how irrational idolatry is. We're not only God replacers, but we're God reducers. Let me give you the context for this, uh, why um, at this time people would be prone to, to do this. Because having God represented as an idol, the reason people were tempted to do this work of, of God reducing, uh, worshiping through creating an image of God, reducing him to something, is because this form of idolatry was incredibly convenient. Do you know what a, a carved piece of wood asks from you? You know what a carved piece of wood demands from you? What? Nothing. It's great. 
It's fantastic. Nothing. You put all the terms on the piece of wood. You can make it how you want. Figure out what shape, what color, paint it. Like you can do whatever you want. The car piece of wood is making no demands on you whatsoever. Do you know what demands Yahweh makes on you? The living God? He has demands for you. Demands for your good, but he, he, he's, a, he's a real. So in a real relationship, he will challenge you. He will correct you. He will also comfort you. He will be with you. But we like things that are easy. And we like things on our own terms. And so it's very natural for us to reduce God to a piece of carved wood so that we can speak all the terms to it. This is very much what happened in this culture, that if you have a carved image idol for your God, the obligation is not anything ethical, not so much about how you are called to live in light of your relationship with this God. The kind of the baseline thing that you needed to do is you would present food before the idol. That's easy. That's going through a ritual rather than having a real relationship. And many of us are prone and tempted to reduce God, not to a literal carved piece of wood, but to relate to him as if he were one. As if all we need to do in this relationship with Yahweh is to present our ritual, and then we can do whatever else we want. Right? We often do this. We reduce God often in this way. We think we just need to present to him our ritual. God actually wants our, our heart, our whole life, or we reduce God in this way. We will pick and choose things about him to ascribe to. That is literally creating our own God to worship. That is carving a wooden idol about, uh, of God and, and worshiping it. When we go through scripture, Thomas Jefferson uh, did this, along with many other horrible things, but Thomas Jefferson did this where he had a Bible and he had an, uh, an exacto knife or whatever the... Uh, the, the you know, 1674 uh, version of an exacto knife was, and he literally would take things out of the Bible. That is a carved creating an idol. That is being a God reducer. And the scary thing about that is each one of us has that tendency beating within our hearts to do that theologically. I don't like these, these doctrines about God. I don't like what God's word says here. We are prone to reduce that, change that, and thereby change God. I don't like that God commands me to do this. Instead of seeing, oh, is it possible that this is his law leading me by his love? We, we want to take that thing out and create a God in our own image, taking and choosing what we please. This is in me. This is in you. This is in every single human being. Do not be discouraged. This is all of our, all of our plight. This is all of our problem. This is all of our tendency together. And so when God says, no other gods before me, it is a display of love because we are at our core idolaters and God through this law, through this command, is seeking to heal us. He is speaking a word of restriction that actually functions as liberation. Understand this. God has already set his people free from external oppression, Egypt, and now by this command, he is seeking to set them free from internal oppression, which is the idolatry in their heart. That is what God is doing with this command. Therefore, if we see it and we read it and say, God is so restrictive, oh my goodness, what a party pooper. Ah, he's so obsessed with himself. We totally miss everything. He is trying to heal us. Because here's the danger of idolatry. When we reduce God or replace God, do you know what we miss? We miss God. 
We miss out on Yahweh. We miss out on the God that can actually comfort us. Our idols can't comfort us. Our idols can't help you. Your idols will not uh, uh, give grace to you. Your idols will not be there for you in a time of need. Your, your idols will create the time of need, but they will not get you through it. Yahweh can. The other danger of idolatry is when we succumb to idolatry, we miss our purpose as human beings made to be close with God. We miss our purpose. We lose what we're made for. This is actually why God roots this command, verse 5, about being a God reducer. He roots it in this command that I am a jealous God. This is, how's this for a Father's Day verse? Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth degree. Happy Father's Day. <laughs> Some of you are like, that's why everything is... So he anchors this healing word, this healing command, he anchors it in, the, in an attribute. I'm a jealous God. You know what that means? That means God is so personal. Yahweh is so personal, he wants to be close to you. So he gets angry about idolatry because idolatry steals you away from him. Steals you from your purpose of being a human being. You're made to know God and cultivate his earth and, and display him and reflect him. He's jealous for you. So he despises idolatry. He's jealous for his glory, absolutely, but he's jealous for you, so he hates idolatry. Because it corrupts the beauty of humanity, his creation. He wants to be close to us. He's a jealous God. He's so personal, he wants us for himself. Just like a, a, a devoted friend desires loyalty from their best friend. A, a, a spouse de uh, desires loyalty from their spouse. A, a parent desires loyalty from, from their child. And when we are betrayed, we are grieved, we are hurt, we are crushed. God desires to be close to us in a loyal, loving, covenant relationship. You need, to, you need to understand this, that God is jealous for you because of his love. God does not want idols to ruin your life. God does not want idols to ruin your walk with him. God does not want idols to steal away your purpose as a human being made in his image. And so in his love, he gives this command to Israel that idols would be displaced from their lives so that they can be close to God and live out their purpose to bless the world. And he wants the very same for you, for his church today. This is a word this is a command, not just for our healing, but given for the sake of closeness. Now, uh, the Father's Day portion, um, the iniquity of the fathers on the children of the third and fourth uh, generation, a great verse maybe if you're looking for a tattoo this summer to, uh, to maybe get, a, get, get some scripture and really display God, um, maybe this is one to consider. Uh, this, this looks odd to us, but actually one of the things, a, a tip, an important thing for, for us to to do as followers of Jesus is anytime you see something that looks weird or strange or rubs you the wrong way in Scripture is, is just hold on to, the, to hold on to this nugget that could it possibly be that you don't understand what it's saying? Just, just, just hold out that possibility. That could it be this is saying something different than what you think? Or could it be it's saying exactly what you think and you're going to have to deal with it? Both of those things will help you. In this case, this isn't so much a, 
hey, we're, we're, this might be hard. We're going to have to deal with this. We're going to walk through this. This is, we need to look at the rest of Scripture to understand what this is saying. That helps us so much as an aside. You're confused about something in, script, in Scripture, a verse or something. Zoom out to the context. Zoom out to the chapter. Zoom out to the book. Zoom out to the section. Zoom out to the genre. Look at the rest of Scripture and see what the rest of Scripture says about that very thing, okay? Side tip over. This text is talking about not the reality that children are accountable for their parents' sin, this text is talking about the reality that just as we pass down genetics and disposition towards brown eyes, curly hair, uh, being over six feet tall, just as we pass down those things to children, we also pass down proclivity or a tendency towards certain idolatry or sin. Just as if I am purchasing a home, that's for both of you. We got two home. We got two families of our homes in our church. Amen. Come on. Well, a couple years. A couple years. Three, four years. We'll get. To, oh, that'll, that'll be there. <laughs> Just as if you purchased a home and you're dealing with a mess that someone has left there because they did not tend to it, you did nothing wrong, but now it's yours. That's what this verse is talking about. We are given proclivity towards sin and the effects of sin from one generation to the next. And that's very much what we see in Israel. If we look at the book of Judges, certain generations are dealing with the impact that this generation worshiped idols. Ezekiel 18, uh, 20 talks about uh, that we are accountable for our own sins, but this text shows us that we deal with the effects from one generation to the next. And that's why this command, have no other gods above me, is a command of love. Because guess what? This is a command of love, not just for our healing, not just to bring us close to God, those things too, but also because God cares about our influence. God says no idols because he wants to heal the broken default of humans and you and me. God says no idols because he's jealous. He wants to be close to you. God says no idols because he wants to influence, he wants you, excuse me, to influence people towards him rather than influence them towards the effects of idolatry. That's what God is saying. I want you to think about it this way. Your worship rubs off. It rubs off in this text to the next generation, but it rubs off to the people around you. This isn't just for parents, this rubs off. Your worship rubs off. Your right worship of Yahweh now sets the table for your children after you or the people around you to get a glimpse of what it means to live out our human purpose, to know God and to reflect Him to the world, to reflect Him to our neighbors. We're all worshipers and influence, either passing down the aroma of worshiping Yahweh or passing down the effects of worshiping idols. Your worship rubs off. So think about this. When you are bowing down in your life to an idol, the people around you see and are impacted by that idolatry. You ever come across a friend who is over-obsessed with somebody? Just like codependent, unhealthy, 
just like super obsessed. And it impacts everything about them. That is idolatry rubbing off and being visible to others. On the other hand, have you ever seen a person who actually said no to an idol and was devoted to Yahweh in such a way that it became compelling to you? That it challenged you and said, I want to be like that. That it inspired you and says, wow, maybe, maybe one day I can continue to grow as a follower of Jesus and, and I, can, I can display that to somebody else and I can reap the, the benefits of that type of uh, closeness to the Lord God. But one example I saw about this, of wor- our worship rubbing off, was uh, uh, reading about um, someone who spends $500 a month that's not impressive uh, in Metro Boston, um, but let me finish. They spend $500 a month. Like, wow, great. They spend $500 a month practicing hospitality, having their neighbors over to their house multiple times a week for dinner. $500 a month, not for their groceries, to have other people in their home eating the food that they made. Their neighbors. I have a civil war with my neighbors downstairs. It was like a civil stomping war. It's just like this fight. We've had great relationships with all our other neighbors obeying Jesus' commands, and now we have this kind of, these neighbors who are like, you will not obey Jesus' commands. We will be angry at you, and you will be angry at us, right? So this is a challenge to me. I love all my neighbors except those ones, so I need to repent of this and, and, and lay down my, my lay, you know, kick out the idol, the, the God of, of, of vengeance <laughs> that says, I've been slighted, and embrace Yahweh and love my neighbors. So when I read this, this challenged me. $500 a month showing hospitality towards your neighbors. Do you know why that is actually obedience to this command, no other gods before me? Do you know why? Because the reason most people will not do that in their own life, in their own way, doesn't need to be 500. You translate that into your life, into your budget, and your stage of life, all that stuff. But the reason that we will not translate that type of devotion to Yahweh displayed in love to our neighbors is because do you know what God we often worship? The God of money. The God of convenience. Think all the time that takes. Sometimes we make an idol of our families. Say, I need, I need, I, I need 14, 14 days a week with my family. Sometimes we idolize a good thing. And so when I read this, I was challenged and I was shown a display of what it means to obey the first commandment saying, okay, God, Yahweh, you are number one. And here's how this becomes worship that rubs off and influences others. What does your budget say about what you worship? Your budget reflects whether you obey this first command or not. Who you spend time with reflects that. Now, obviously, translated into your stage of life, translated into all those other things, right? This, this doesn't mean you need to go do this, but, but think through these things. God gives this command because he wants our worship to rub off. Think about this. How is Yahweh, as your God, influencing others towards him? How is Yahweh, as your God, influencing others towards him? Be encouraged where you see that. God wants you to be encouraged where you see that. And, and where that's not there, ask him to help you. Is your idolatry clogging your influence for Yahweh? 
Is there an idol you are clinging to that is clogging your influence for Yahweh, who wants the world to know him, who wants your friends to know him, who wants people to see a tangible display of what it means to follow Jesus? God's command to worship him alone is a display of his love for our healing because our default is idols. It's a display of his love for our closeness with him because he desires you. It's a display of his love because he wants us to influence others towards him because he loves the world. The problem is not only are we defaulted towards being God replacers and God reducers, but like Israel, we often do not have the power within us to obey this command. We often do not have the power within us to stand up against our idols. And so Yahweh gives this law in love to heal us, gives this command, no other gods before me, but he gives us something better in light of what Jesus has done. Not only has he given us his law to heal us with this command, but he's given us his son to forgive us of our idolatry. Do you understand that Jesus comes to save idolaters? Fundamentally, that's what it means when Jesus forgives sin. The fundamental sin is idolatry. We worship the wrong things. Jesus dies to pay the penalty for idolaters. We see as we see these attributes in the text that God is a just God. He's not going to let idolatry go, but he, in his love, works with his son to come and bring redemption for us. Your idolatry through trust in Jesus is absolutely forgiven. But not only does he give his son to forgive us of, idol- of our idolatry, But Jesus' record of perfect devotion to the Father is really what's hanging over our lives. Even though we are God-reducers and God-replacers, God sees us through faith in Jesus as if we have been singularly loyal, devoted, and faithful to Him. As if we have never bowed the knee to any other God. That's literally how God views you, truly, because of the work of Jesus. This is why we can be honest about our idolatry and yet never hang our heads in shame because of the work that Jesus has done for us. Think about this. Jesus enters human history and never bows his knee to an idol. The God of approval, he never bowed to it. He spoke the truth when it cost him. He loved people that much. The God of comfort, Jesus never bowed to it. The God of comfort would have ran from the cross. Jesus ran to the cross in love to redeem us. The God of pleasure, Jesus said, my food, my pleasure, my desire is to do the will of the Father, to redeem the world. That's the devotion of Jesus for us. And not only does God give us his son to forgive us of our idolatry, but he gives us his spirit so that we actually have not just forgiving grace, but transforming grace. We have a new power within us, Yahweh dwelling in us by his spirit to help us say no to our idols. Israel never had that. We do. What is the idol that clings so closely to you? You have God's grace of forgiveness for your idolatry, and you have the Spirit's presence in you for transformation and change. Be encouraged at what Yahweh in His love has provided. His law as a display of love for our healing for our closest with him, for our influence with others, and his son to forgive us, and his spirit to empower us. See how God's command is a display 
of his love.